Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. I know it has been some time since we've published any content, so thank you for your patience. But this week, we have a new episode, and we are sitting down with Monsignor Robert Dempsey, who is a Liturgical Institute faculty member and an expert in canon law. And Dennis and I get to ask him questions about liturgy today, and it is an amazing conversation, and I cannot wait to bring him back on the show. Also, a shout out to our new Patreon supporters. So shout out to Cindy Burnett, Aylan O'Connor, and Alex Crow. If you want to support us uh, on the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And lastly, you really should come to our conference on September 14th. It is with Dr. James Pauley of Steubenville, and he is talking about reimagining sacramental preparation, how catechists, pastors, and parents can turn the tide of sacramental indifference. Dr. James Pauley is a graduate of our program, and I'm a huge fan of his and what he does in terms of liturgical catechesis. So this is a one-day conference. It's $100 on our campus here on September 14th. If you want to register or learn more about the conference, you can go to liturgicalinstitute.com slash conferences. And without further ado, episode 45 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, Dennis. Yes. <laughs> we have a very special guest here today. It's a and whole it's, group of cows. It is a cattle of cows. That's you know, not true. Do you know there are many things that I'm excited about today, Jesse? What, what is one of the things? One of them is this game that my niece introduced me to. It's called Township on your phone. And you raise crops, and then you raise sheep, and then you, raise, then you take the wool and turn it into yarn, and then you make coats, and then you send it on a train away. So this is my reversion to being 10 years old. Oh, that's great. I'm busy raising children, so I don't know. Yeah, I know. I I have time on my hands. (laughs) And I'm also drinking a flat Coke. Flat Coke? Yeah. This podcast is not sponsored by flat Coke. Or regular Coke or Diet Coke or Coke or any other Coke. But the pie crust, we had a pie crust thing for a while, and it has passed. But (laughs) So the chickens are acting up. Um, But... It does seem a violation of the law of Coke, doesn't it, to, uh, to leave it in the refrigerator for two days and then but drink it. You're all about violating laws. That's what I know. If yeah. I know one thing about you, it's violating laws. If there's anybody out there who likes flat Coke, please tell us at questions at liturgyguys.com because I am the only person in the world, as far as I know, who loves when the Coke is two weeks old. Dennis went on vacation for a week, and before he left, he opened a can of coke and put it in the refrigerator so that it would be flat and decarbonated by the time yes. he would return it's like aging wine or cheese it's just better that way it's not it's definitely not but, but that's it, that's my law that's my subjective response to the law of coke and speaking of law who's here with us monsignor robert dempsey thank you for joining us my pleasure thank you for having he's me. on our faculty for and i prefer my carbonated beverages with carbonation yeah we do like everybody else that's especially the, tonic water is flat it should be thrown i would out. say that's the ordinary form of coke is if it's carbonated yeah all my taste buds always want something extraordinary, extraordinary. <laughs> ordinary extraordinary this well, is this is a long-running thing we've you had. You prefer flat, bland, 
without it's not sparkle bl- or light. Well, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I find it actually kind of painful. I think he's got you there. <laughs> it's painful to my uh, taste buds, so he's, I'd rather have my Coke without pain. He's fasting from joy. Mm. <laughs> no, I don't find what pain to be joy. delicate mouth you must have. <laughs> Carbonation bothers <laughs> no, Don't tempt the ladies, my yeah. senior. Do, do, okay. do you like flat beer, too? <laughs> I don't really like any kind of beer, but uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a long story of being a super taster. How about flat champagne? No, I don't really like much of champagne at all. I just you know fight my way through it on New Year's Eve. That's how it goes. Mm. I'm, I'm I, I admit it. I am unusual in the taste bud department, but in many departments, you're unusual. Now you've been teaching here at the Liturgical Institute for I don't know how many years now. Ten? Uh, I think more? Le- uh, nine or ten years now. Yeah. Okay, and I remember way back in the beginning. I think when Monsignor Mannion was still here, or maybe it was. No, she had just uh, Monsignor Clister probably. Okay, had we had you in as a Hillenbrand lecturer to talk about yeah. your doctoral dissertation, and even though it's not quite what we're talking about, although it's related. Uh, can you tell us about your doctoral dissertation, which I always find endlessly fascinating. If there's nobody's doctoral dissertation in the world, maybe no one's ever said that to you, but this is such an interesting question for our day, because your, your doctorate is in moral theology, right? It is. It's in moral theology, and it dealt with the question of what catechisms have taught for centuries, that um, we have a duty before God, a duty in conscience to obey uh, human laws that are issued by human authorities, both in the civil sphere and uh, also in the church. So it's not just a question of kind of playing by the rules of the club, but that this really has a moral implication, that you're, you're duty-bound to respect and follow the laws of the society you belong to. And I remember from many years ago, you said liturgical law is in actuality, law. <laughs> How about that? Of course, that's why we use the term. And so when we talk about having the proper respect and obedience towards uh, church law, it includes the laws of the liturgy. Now, how do we talk about culpability in those questions? I mean, there's always the question whether somebody knows it's wrong. I mean, well, is, sure, it, is when it pain of sin? About, Are we talking yeah. about pain of sin? Well, if you uh, know what's required and you willingly do it and there's no excusing cause or extraordinary circumstances that would grant, you know, allow for an exception, yes, if you willfully disobey the law, you're committed to sin. That is a big deal. I mean, it's mm-hmm. very simple in the one hand, but I don't think anybody thinks of liturgical law that way. We sort of say, do, say the black do the red, and we yell at each no, other. No, we don't but, anymore, unfortunately. Uh, I think in the past we did. I mean, I think priests and, and uh, were very conscientious about that sort of thing. Um, almost in the case of some guys, even to the point of scrupulosity. Right. And perhaps as a reaction to that, um, now there's a uh, kind of... A, a looser attitude in the new liturgy, the revised liturgy, all the liturgical books give you a variety of options, and I think perhaps that's created the mentality with, you know, if I have option A, B, and C, then it doesn't matter too much whether I invent my own option D, E, or F, uh, which is not the case. You know, if you have a choice of three things, that means you've got to do one of those three things. It doesn't mean you can just kind of add on your own little option because uh, you think it's better. Right, and then how do you determine what the laws are? I think that's kind of what we hope to talk about today is documentation and law. You teach that course for us called Liturgical Documentation and Law. I have your syllabus right here. There you go. Uh, because Me I don't, too? I, I've never sat in on your course. I don't really know uh, what you say. But what, <laughs> how would you sum up the course if you say Liturgical well, Institute is a program? What we talk about, you know, what we talk about is... Um, First of all, what the Code of Canon Law says, uh, Book 4 of the Code is all about the Church's mission of sanctifying, and so it concerns liturgy in general, the Mass, and the other sacraments, and even other things like sacred times and 
dedication of altars and churches and things of that sort. So that's one whole area. Then you have uh, what's in the liturgical books themselves. So uh, the general instructions that are in the front of the lectionary and the missal, and then you have the prenotanda or introductions that are in front of each of the sacramental rituals. And then in addition to that, during the course of the, each of these rituals, you have usually written in red ink, that's why they're called rubrics from a Latin word for red chalk, uh, further directions. So those would be the principal sources, the, uh, the, church, the, the church's code, plus the prescriptions in her liturgical books. And then in addition to that, um, uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship, the Roman Pontiff, other authorities will issue from time to time documents uh, explaining, expounding, urging, uh, modifying uh, liturgical law, and all of those need to be consulted. So in the course, we spend a lot of time with Book Four of the Code, and then we look through the Prenatanda, and the, certainly the general instruction of the Missal, uh, the, the general instruction of Liturgy of the Hours, general instruction of the Lectionary, and then uh, some of the, the prenotanda of the various ritual books. So I guess any graduate of our program or any liturgically educated person in general would want to know, A, that there are these laws, uh, what they are, and where they well, are. Well, if I'm not mistaken, the Liturgical Institute considers it a required course. So <laughs> well, right, <laughs> Anyone right, right. who gets a degree here has been exposed to It's under to the canon of, of the Liturgical Institute. <laughs> yeah. But it's a required course because it's really a of central course. question. I mean, if you were going to take a driver's test, you would want to know what you do at a red light and a green light, right? Well, and, sure, because as I tell people, liturgy is what the church does. Uh, and so what, we, what the church does is what's set forth in her liturgical books and her liturgical laws. And uh, you know, the, de you know, the prescription made right there in the code is liturgy is the public worship of the church celebrated according to her liturgical books by those deputed by her to celebrate. But what if someone says, to you, oh, Monsignor, you know, you were in Rome a long time. You're a highbrow. You want all these things. We have to meet the people where they are. And liturgical law gets in the way of people's actual experience of God, and if you focus on law too much, then you're not doing liturgy anymore, you're just a lawyer. Well, my experience in 38 years as a priest, most of which have been in, in uh, parish work, is if you celebrate the liturgy according to the book with beauty and prayerfulness, you'll never get a complaint. Most of the time, people get their hackles up when Father is either doing something they know isn't quite right, or Perhaps they're so used to it being done the wrong way that when they see it the right way, they might be a little surprised at first. But if you explain it to them, they usually understand and uh, accept it. Is so there, we're in a very you know litigious society. Sorry, mm -hmm. Jesse, but everybody beats up the millennials. In fact, we were having a Come on. meeting yesterday about our student handbook. And if you don't prescribe it, A, B, C, one, two, three in the student handbook, then people will say, well, that wasn't illegal. That was not allowed. You can't kick me out of this program or you can't discipline me because it's not there in the law. Yet, strangely, when it comes to liturgical law, we're like, oh, yeah, whatever, loosey-goosey, don't, you know, don't get Well, you know, <clears throat> the Second Vatican Council in the, in the Constitution, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, said very clearly, number 22, no one, not even a priest, may add, delete, or alter what is in the liturgical books. Uh, and that's repeated in the code and has been repeated re a number of times by various instructions on Holy See. So, and that kind of covers all your bases, you know, add, delete, change. So in other words, uh, as they as say, you know, do the red, say the black. Uh, it's somewhat simplistic, but uh, that's what it ultimately boils down to. 
When Monsignor Mannion was here, he, he turned the word clericalism on its head for a lot of people because people used to think clericalism was the old, quiet, low mass where the priest said everything and people did nothing. But he said the, what you know, stereotypically is called the game show host priest is actually the true clericalist model because he's taking the liturgy, which belongs in part to the people, right? They have a reasonable expectation in justice to have the law followed. When the priest doesn't do that, it's actually a clericalist violation of justice toward the people of God. Do you, is that right? Do you agree with that? Well, I think he, he's got a good point because one of the cardinal principles of the liturgical reform was that each person should do all that and only that that pertains to his or her ministry. So um, if you have a deacon, the deacon ought to read the gospel, not the priest, uh, and so on. If you the lay lector is there, a reader, then they should do the first reading or second reading or not, uh, not have a deacon do it. Uh, so th that's true, and when it, uh, but what I think he's pointing to is the tendency to turn the liturgy into a kind of a, a show in which uh, you know the priest functions as as the MC, uh, particularly at funerals and weddings. You know, I've, I've concelebrated, concelebrating because not when I'm the celebrant, but concelebrating. And now our first reading will be read by Becky Jones. And uh, come not on leading down. Our, not exactly Becky. Oh, come Becky on Jones. down because She's they are worst. sitting usually in a pew and we all sit there <laughs> while she stand gets up there. And, and now our second reading will be done by Tom Smith. Uh, uh, others, uh, when they start the introduction of the Mass, you know, they crack a few jokes and, hey, good morning, everyone, and all this. There's already a liturgical greeting. It comes from sacred scripture. You know, that's right. what we, Which is the greeting of Christ to his mystical body, right? Exactly. When you mess with that, you're really messing then with something it, serious. It really becomes focused on, on, on the priest. And uh, I don't see that now with younger priests. By younger priests, I mean priests ordained in the last 20 years or so. But I, did know, I do notice it with priests more of my own generation, priests who were trained in the, in the 70s, maybe even into the early 80s. Um, because there were seminaries that uh, they were taught, you know, each of you has to develop your own presidential style and you have to kind of make the liturgy your own. And, you know, it's sort of like the, the rubrics are here, this nice little recipe, but you sort of mix and match it and, and stir it up and serve it the way you think works. Well, then you don't really have public worship anymore. You have Father Jones's Mass. Oh, I love Father Jones's Mass. <laughs> <laughs> Even when they say it to me, and oh, I love Monsignor Dempsey. Well, please, no, it's not my mass. It's, right. it's the, the Lord's mass. It's a, right. the Church's liturgy. And so, in that sense, law is um, kind of a safeguard in a sense, right? It kind of gives you the parameters of where you can go. It's not the end, obviously, in itself, but it keeps you from going off the rails. Sure, it, it's like anything else. You know, the, uh, you know, the rules of golf are not the game of golf. But you don't have the game of golf if you don't play according to the rules. Or right? the rules of grammar are not poetry. But exactly, you can't have poetry. Yeah, it's exactly. Arbitrary. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we have you have you know this is called liturgical documentation and law. We talk about a lot of documents on this podcast. And how? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes one document says something, and then fifty years later, the pope who's then Pope, changes something. You know, Pius X said all these things about music, you know, no women in the scola, yeah, yeah. no women in the sanctuary, and then no drums and no cymbals, and then Vatican II opens it up to other things, and then they get replaced. Or Musicum Sacrum, this document on music that comes, you know, right after the council. It has this, this authority of how you implement Sacrosanum Concilium. But then the new general instructions are something else, and it seems like you need like a little pool of like research 
assistance to figure out what is the current status well, of Well, you know, there's a, whole, there's a whole discipline called canon law studies or canonistica. Uh, and that's what, just like there's legal studies in, in the civil sphere because trying to figure out what all of this means in practice can get a little hairy, and particularly with the liturgy because subsequent documents may include things that have been said before, and they may change them, they may just overlook them, and you, you get the question, well, what are we supposed to do? Even a very simple thing, like the first two general instructions of the Missal said that the Alleluia verse before the Gospel, if it's not sung, it may be omitted. Okay? If you don't sing it, it's possible, it's permissible to omit it. Several years later, the second general, second general instruction, second edition of the general instruction of the lectionary says, if the Alleluia is not sung, it must be omitted. You are not to you know, In other words, if you don't sing it, it, you omit it. So that seems to change the previous legislation. The third typical edition of the general instruction goes back and repeats what was in the first two editions, saying the Alleluia verse may be omitted, meaning leaving you with the option. So may wish. versus must. Right, yeah. exactly. So now the third typical edition is the latest thing, so that's what we follow until... <laughs> Whatever the fourth typical edition says. Right. So which one trumps one? I guess that's how you have to know which documents have higher well, teaching authority. You know, the, well, that, that's part of it. Uh, part of it is time. You know, a later document is meant to uh, replace another document. But the whole question of abrogation, derogation, subrogation, and whatnot is itself a kind of hairy aspect of canon law in which you have uh, canon lawyers have to analyze uh, to what extent is this changing the existing law, to what extent is it not? Is it completely reordering the whole thing? So we start all over from the beginning and the previous law doesn't really have any effect anymore. And with the liturgy, it's more complicated because there are all kinds of essential uh, elements of the liturgy perdure from generation to generation. You know, So all of the teaching of Tra La Solicitudine about the nature of music, its importance, its role in fostering the devotion of the people, all of that perennially valid. But a subsequent norm may say, yes, women can sing in the choir. You can have drums or cymbals or yeah, exactly. pianos or whatever. That's where it gets uh, more difficult. And you have to, uh, you know, somebody should write a dissertation on everything the church has said in the last 50 <laughs> years. Jesse? On the placement of the tabernacle. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> because depending on uh, which document you consult, there, there are different emphases. Uh, so that, that's another question. And Dennis kind of brought it up, too. But... The different authorities of the different documents. So we have, um, you know, something that the Pope might say in a general assembly versus something that is a motu proprio versus something that is um, an interview a, on a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Pope Francis so, is fond of doing. So what? What are we, the lay and the people who are working in in this arena, this academic arena? How are we supposed to organize the authority of such documents? What What documents are most authoritative? Right. Well, one of my uh, predecessors here, Monsignor Roy Clister, put together a very handy list of all the different kinds. Oh, the chickens are back. <laughs> my goodness. Sorry. Sorry. This is a serious question here. <laughs> how, am, how am I the serious guy and then you're the... Well, I don't know. I can tell. You haven't had enough coffee yet, so all right. I have to be the idiot for a while. Sometimes trying to figure these things out is like herding cats. You know, you've got <laughs> documents going in yeah. different directions. But uh, certainly the highest authority would be the, the constitutions of an ecumenical council approved by the Roman pontiff. You know, once the pope in council uh, approves something, that would be very high authority. Or but, the pope exercising his supreme authority in a 
legal document, like an apostolic constitution. So uh, the, the Missal, et cetera, was promulgated by apostolic constitution, a catechism by an apostolic, the code of canon law. And these. what is that in relation to like an exhortation? An exhortation generally is more in the order of teaching. Okay. And it is meant, as the word suggests, to urge, encourage, guide, direct, illuminate uh, people as to how best to live some this a- or that aspect of the Christian life. Mm. So it's, it's much more of a, a teaching document. Um, and so there may be exhortations on how to live and practice and love the liturgy, which um, are perennially valid, as opposed to a, a modo proprio like Ministeria Quedam, which abolished the minor orders and established the lay ministries of lector and acolyte, which is a very concrete legal document changing existing church law. Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard some people who quibble about Vatican II's authority, whether they like it or don't, say, well, some are dogmatic, some are pastoral. Sacrosanct Concilium is actually not a dogmatic constitution. I, I've just read this uh, claim on a podcast, uh, I mean, uh, a blog post yesterday, and therefore it's only basically suggestions. This is what they're arguing. How do you, what's the difference between a dogmatic and a pastoral, and what A dogmatic is meant to promulgate uh, church teaching either ordinary or, uh, or a definition of faith, an extraordinary ef- exercise. Um, uh, <clears throat> but there are constitutions that have legal force. And so the Sacrosanctum Concilium is meant, not only the first part of it is a sort of a summary of theology on the liturgy, um, which kind of builds very much on what was in Mediatra Day, which is a much more theological document. Right, that's Pius XII, 1947. The Constitution is primarily focused on the reform of the liturgy, so the, the doctrinal aspect of it is, is handled uh, in, a, in a more succinct fashion because it wants to spend most of its time talking about how we're going to implement the reform of the church's liturgy. And so most of it, and what we dis- discuss uh, in the course, of course, is to emphasize the dispositive parts and then show, as we go on and study the liturgical books, how the general norms or prescriptions of the Constitution were actually implemented in the liturgical books as they were promulgated in the, well, we're, you know, I think we're just about finished with them all now, now that the... Uh, right. Well, we talked about the different liturgical uh, groups. I think Monsignor Mannion had these five categories. One of them was reform of the reform. And one of the principles of that is that, sure, we can accept Vatican II. However, the concilium and what they did is not guided by the Holy Spirit to be infallible. And therefore, we can look back 60 years later and say, all right, well, you know, they tried some things and the missal can be reformed. Is that a legitimate position, whether you think it's a good idea or not, a separate question, but is that yeah, legally, is you're that you're right, it's a separate position? question. Uh, any as, anything that pertains to human positive law is not guaranteed infallibility. I mean, infallibility provides the, you know, what we teaching about divine revelation, what is the church proposes as having been revealed to us by God and, and it required uh, belief. Um, whether or not uh, you wear purple vestments in Lent or not is a matter of church discipline. Uh, and you can always ask uh, Vatican II resulted from the fact that for two generations leading up to it, all kinds of scholars questioned, well, maybe we should change this, maybe we ought to change that. In fact, after Mediator Day was published, Pius XII set up a special internal commission within the Holy See to, to make suggestions as to how we might change it. That means studying the liturgy as we have it now and then proposing concrete changes. And 
the most uh, dramatic of which was, of course, revision of the rights of Holy Week, uh, which were completed in 1955. Right, which most um, people don't realize that the Easter Vigil was at 8 in the morning on no, Saturday no, 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 before no. the council. Like, there but, were real yeah, reasons for reform sometimes. You, know, but, uh, you, you read essays by very knowledgeable, intelligent people claiming that, you know, the revision of, not so much the time, but the revision of the right of the Easter Vigil was not well done and, you know, it was break with the organic development of it, et cetera. And, you know, that's a, a, a position you can argue to and argue for if you wish, but um, it's speculative at this point because the liturgy as it is now is what the church gives us. So there's a difference, I guess, between law and discussion about whether that law is a good idea. Right? Exactly, yeah. of course right. it is. And so yeah. that's why people constantly have something to talk about. Yeah. When What, what about um, how all of this relates to your local... Uh, country or diocese. So, you know, we have a council of Catholic bishops here in America that um, will now recently have a little more um, leeway in what they can do and what they can't do and what the Vatican approves and what they don't approve. So how does that work in regard to some of these authoritative documents, the leeway that we as a local um, church in America can make decisions somewhat in regard to translations or things like that. All of that in each case, whether you're talking about a translation or alteration of the rites, is spelled out usually in each of the various liturgical books. So there'll be a section frequently in the Prenotanda indicating Episcopal conferences may determine this or that. Mm -hmm. uh, this is left up to the discretion uh, or decision of a, the Episcopal conference. Some things are left to the diocesan bishop, but generally if it's anything that concerns a local adaptation, they prefer it to be on a regional level rather than just for variation from diocese to diocese. Mm -hmm. Then uh, the fourth instruction, uh, Varietatis Legitimae, which came out in 1995, also has a process for a more substantial alteration of the rights for the local church. And that is studied and proposed by an Episcopal conference and then submitted to the Holy See for permission to implement it. The, the more recent change that the Pope Francis made is to kind of put the primary responsibility for preparing translations on the Episcopal conferences with a, a final review by the Holy See, but with the understanding the Holy See is not going to be actively involved in that process except approving at the end, and if there's a serious problem raising an objection, but it would have to be, I think, you know, they, they can't be involved in saying, well, you ought to translate this this way or that way unless there is a significant, uh, significant problem with the translation. Here's a burning case study that I've thought about, okay? You can send your hourly fee later for this. <laughs> um, in Sacrosanum Concilium, it says on their section of sacred art that sacred art should have a noble beauty rather than mere sumptuous display. But then when you get to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, it says liturgical art and architecture should have a noble simplicity. And now Vatican II does not say that art and architecture should have a noble simplicity. It says the rites and the ornaments and the vestments should have a noble simplicity. However... Somebody between the actual document in Vatican II and the general instruction changed the word beauty to simplicity, and that's what how people are working to this day. So who wins in that situation? The council document or the... Dennis always loses. Or the general instruction. It all depends on how you define simplicity. Well, yeah. That, no, seriously, uh, and nobility and how the two interact. Uh, so I think the real, the real issue is not 
quibbling over which document outranks the other document. But oh, I wanted that answer. <laughs> no one in Vatican II is a higher authority, and therefore it wins. Well, except that uh, instructions are meant to concretize and explicate and practically uh, implement uh, a more general document. So the, the instruction is meant to give you a fuller understanding of what the superior document means. So it, it's derivative in its authority, and... Uh, you know, if it's at odds, it should be corrected. But in general, the purpose of the instruction is to spell out what the, the higher document may, means in practice. So I should synthesize the theology of how simplicity and beauty harmoniously exist with each other and then go from there. You should be able to with uh, your, uh, I think I your can. classical background. I think I, I, think I can. Okay. Uh, but I wanted a legalistic peg to hang my head no, on. No, no, but, you know, you, you look at... Uh, Neoclassical buildings, even our nation capital, you know, there is a simplicity to them and a nobility to them. Right. A yeah, big giant dome on the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives. You know, if you Council. compare them to the White House to Versailles, you can see what noble simplicity looks like. Right. Okay. Uh, we had a, a question come up. So we'll, we do this podcast, we typically pick a topic, and then at the end of the podcast, we answer a question. Uh, we had a question that we felt we were unable to answer fully and that we wanted to make sure that we related to you, somebody who might have a little more insight on this. The question was, um, does a bishop have the authority to, um, to remove a legitimate option from his diocese in terms of a liturgical practice? So I think in the case this was ad orientum. So can a bishop say, in my diocese, you cannot celebrate Mass ad orientum, which is a legitimate option. The bishop is supposed to make prescriptions for the proper following of the liturgy in his diocese. Um, in general, I don't think it's good for him to tell his priest not to do something that the law allows. So say, in my diocese, we're not going to wear rose vestments on Gaudete Sunday or mm -hmm. something. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a prudent use of his authority. When we're talking about the orientation of the altars, though, I think we're talking about, um, you know, we can debate, and I have my own opinions on, you know, whether or not doing this was a good idea, but mm -hmm. having done it, um, you know, we're kind of, that's the way it is now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a bishop can say, you know, I, it, pastoral, this is going to create more problems uh, than it solves, and I don't think this you ought to be doing this, Father. And so uh, if he puts the priest under a precept saying, uh, you know, under uh, obedience, I tell you not to do this because I don't think it's good for our people. Yeah, I, I don't think he's, uh, uh, I think, don't think he's acting wrongly. But in general, um, it, it's not a diocesan bishop's job to start dictating, you know, which penitential rite you use or uh, what kind of hymns you have on Sunday, what, mm -hmm. you know, as long as they are in accordance with the general norms of the church. Uh, so I know another diocese, uh, you know, the, the law allows three, the use of three different colors in masses for the dead. Violet is the default color in the new liturgy. Black is allowed as an option. And in the United States, permission has been granted to use white. Well, the diocese said, you know, in our diocese, we only use white. We never celebrate mass for the dead in any other color. Uh, I think that's... Uh, <clears throat> I don't think that's legitimate. so. It's a kind of a can and should type of. Well, you know, we're the difference between making a norm for the entire diocese and telling an individual in this circumstances, I do not want you to do this. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I understand that there might be a pastoral need, um, something that might cause, you know, maybe 
uproar or something like that. But I'm, you know, we were just curious more about the the authority to do something like that uh, for legitimate option or legitimate variety. Yeah, they can't say it's illegal, but they could claim for pastoral reasons they prohibit it for the some time. I guess that's the way to think about it. I guess. And there have been other instances where bishops, you know, make something, you know, all throughout the diocese liturgically, whether it's a placement of a, fur, a liturgical furnishing or, you know, something like that. And I, I mean, it's just nice to have a little more clarity on that to know. Well, there, you know, there are bishops who have said that, you know, all tabernacles must be in the center of the sanctuary. I kind of like that, but I'm mm-hmm. not sure that uh, that's necessarily what the bishop's role is. It should be it should be in accordance with the law, which means it should be noble, it should be dignified, it should be obvious, it should be conducive to prayer, it should et cetera, et cetera. And in many smaller parish churches, that means the only obvious place is front and center. But uh, on the other hand, you have the prescriptions for cathedrals, which say very explicitly that the Blessed Sacrament is supposed to be kept in a separate chapel. And that was the law before Vatican II. Mm-hmm. I mean, was, well before, yeah. yeah, long. yeah. It's been but the, as we know, things change, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> now, Chris Carstens, I think, told me the difference between the word prescriptive and proscriptive in law. I don't know if this is a standard usage. That Basically, the logic is the liturgical law and church law generally but liturgical law in particular, it doesn't tell you all the things you can't do. It tells you what you should do well, or must do. Well, traditionally, uh, moralists have divided rubrics into three categories. Prescriptive, directive, and facultative. Prescriptive means things you must or must not do. So they can be positive. You are obliged uh, to wear an alp stole and chasuble when you celebrate mass. Or... Uh, or prohibitive, you know, you may not sing the Gloria on the Sundays of Lent. Uh, other things are directive in which they indicate which is what is a best practice or what is a good idea or this is uh, something we strongly recommend or urge without strictly requiring it. So um, you may say if you have more than one deacon, you can have two deacons serve, and the, they divide the ministries between them or something like that. And that doesn't mean you're required to do that, but that's a directive. Um, the third thing are facultative, which just gives you a choice. You know, I mentioned rose vestments before. That's facultative. Mm-hmm. You may wear them. You may not. The law doesn't say which is preferable. It just says you can do either one. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> the question always is, uh, distinguishing between a prescriptive rubric and something that's uh, directive, a guideline or recommendation without strictly requiring it. Well, we got a listener question a while back now from someone who was at a baptism, mm-hmm. and the priest said, held up the baby at the end and said, let this new Christian's first act in the church to be to give you all the blessing, the final blessing at the end of Mass. Held oh, up the baby and made the God sign of the cross. Us. Now, someone could say, well, it's not forbidden in liturgical law to do that by name, and therefore it's... Well, actually it is, because... (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) You may not use newly baptized babies to give blessings. Blessings may only be given by those who are authorized to give them. And and, 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 in this rite, the blessing is given by the celebrant of the rite, which is a priest or a deacon. Uh, The same thing with blessings outside of the liturgy. When they may be given and whatnot is governed by the norms of the Book of Blessings. And for uh, children before the age of reason to give blessings during the celebration of a sacrament is not included in any. And that doesn't mean because it's not prohibited. Remember what we said, uh, Sacrosanctum 22, you cannot add, delete, 
or alter what's in the liturgical book. Right. So if the liturgical it, book doesn't include the newly baptized neophyte is to bless the assembly, then you don't <laughs> do it. It doesn't say you can't burn the church down either. That's right? going to be our next bad name, <laughs> newly baptized <laughs> neophyte. Yeah. That's a great bad name. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything you think the whole world should know about liturgical documentation and law? That or the liturgical institute. Or whatever. Just something that people well, say, I, help I, I the can, world. I can't recommend the liturgical institute enough. I recommend everyone take it. Oh, good. I, uh, one thing you might consider, I have, for instance, a gentleman I Paris said, uh, you know, I, I'm not interested in doing a degree, but Monsignor, I'd love to take your course and to offer individual courses. We do that. You can come as an at-large student. Anybody okay. can come and take well, one course. It's good to know. Yeah. In fact, I was just telling a pastor that many people have DREs or pastoral associates, and they can't really come for a whole degree or a whole summer, but if they have continuing education funds in your budget, send them here for a three-week course, or send them here if you're local, you know, once a week for one of our courses. A single course would be great, and it could really bring a lot of new ideas back. Well, the to summer parish. program you have and the summer SDL program that the theology department has is excellent because religious superiors and bishops may release somebody for six weeks or something, but they can't release them for an entire year or two for mm -hmm. studies. They just need the personnel. But if they can let them go for six weeks to, and work on a degree, that's why. Yeah, how many people got JCLs from Catholic U by taking you know five summers of courses, or maybe it's longer now. I wonder how long my wife will release me for. Hmm. <laughs> the rest of your life, if you're not careful. Tell her, bring her along. Yeah, oh, right. oh, oh, oh. Here's a question I meant to ask you this. Local custom. Now, I think people think custom is just sort of arbitrary how we do this around here. Somebody else told me custom actually has a kind of theological definition. Do you know anything about custom? What there? most people mean most of the time by custom has little to do with what the Code of Canon Law considers custom. And it's a, it's a rather complex section. And all you have to do is get one of the standard commentaries and read it to realize that a custom that really is contrary to the law, and whether or not it acquires the force of law, it's couched in a lot of different conditions and whatnot. Bad habit especially habitual disobedience in itself does not necessarily establish custom, particularly when the competent authority has repeatedly reprobated said custom. You know, usually there has to be, always, I should say always, there has to be ultimately consent on the part of the competent authority. That consent consists, uh, may consent, consist in condoning or allowing a practice to develop over 30 years or more. But there has to be some at least tacit consent. In the case you cite, you know, how many documents from the Holy See in the last 50 years have urged the wearing of the proper vesture? <laughs> Since most of our people aren't going to go dig out that section in canon law, what makes a custom legitimate versus, oh, we've always done it this way ever since Father So-and-so came here? Yeah, I couldn't summarize it off the top okay. of my head because it is complex. It has to be something that has been introduced by a community capable of receiving law over a period of t a described period of time with the intention of making this the norm with the at least tacit if not explicit approval of the proper authority etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's it's much more complex than that but uh, there are all kinds of de facto customs meaning this is what we always do but uh, that doesn't necessarily have the force of law or it might in, be contrary to law, in fact. Yeah. Okay. Well, there can be customs that uh, are legitimately prescribed uh, over after a period of time that are contrary 
to the, the general law. So some little diocese in Spain has a 500-year history of doing something. Oh, well, what are called immemorial customs, et cetera, you know, they are only reprobated if the higher authority or the proper authority explicitly says you must stop this. Uh, but if they don't, then a, an immemorial custom, like which the is any... a blue vestment in Spain, for instance, I've heard. Yeah, exactly. They have. Well, some of those are actually, I think, indults and, or uh, may began as customs and then were later explicitly approved. Uh, all right. Well, who knew liturgical law could be this fascinating? It's incredibly fascinating. And we get to ask the questions that we want to ask <laughs> as liturgists, which is kind of rare for usually people are asking us questions. That's so true. We might have to do like an annual, just kind of gather all our questions for you at once a year and then <laughs> and and bring, the stump the chump <laughs> show yeah, or right, something. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, cow, send them to the me in advance so I at least yeah, have a little sure. time to read. Well, I don't feel like... You didn't get caught off guard with some of these. I think no, these no. were these were softball questions. Are you right there? Uh, the your cows, cows are very, very Feeding happy. time at the zoo here. Do you calf to do that right now? <laughs> oh, All right. Oh, yeah, that's how I get them to stop. I just I had have to, to make a I, dumb joke. I set you up for that pun. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Monsignor. You're really very welcome. It. You're right. very welcome. This thank, is great. Thank you, and uh, God, God bless. bless. Yeah. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>